Before we get started, you should probably know that the following podcast contains strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Also, it will almost certainly contain spoilers. Welcome to episode 18 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I am Andy Stewart, I'm a disgusting filmmaker, and I am sitting opposite another man. You are indeed, I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer, an occasional doer of musical things, and a man with an extremely scratchy throat today. Now I wonder why that might be, Mitchell. Yes, Um, so for colour, this is uh, being recorded on a Wednesday evening, I returned from Fight Fest yesterday. As we both you. did, yes, yes, must, we did. You're uh, you're in considerably better vocal form than I am. <laughs> so I'll do my best with this one, but as you can tell, I'm struggling a little bit. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't come across too abrasive in your ears. I don't know. There's a, a sexiness to it. Oh wow! Just thought you should know. Thanks a lot. So here we are, just the two of us again. Yeah, I think that uh, we kind of just emerged as being the sensible thing to do. Yeah. Um, amidst all the kind of chaos of uh, Fright Fest. How's the 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 post fest blues? Post fest blues are very much there. They're yeah, in, they're in force. They are very much so. But I think that uh, rolling straight into this, I think, is probably a good way to uh, kind of mitigate against that. Because I never really had to. I never really had time to stop for breath. I came home. I got home yesterday. Went straight home and rewatched the film. Took loads of notes on it. Then woke up. Went to work today. And then now I have battered through my notes again. And I kind of feel like I still haven't stopped watching horror. <laughs> Because I got here, and in fact, we can get to this. Like, yeah. we, we can also, jump. nice to be back in the studio, if you like. Yes, yeah, it's nice to be back at uh, Strong Vowel HQ, if you like, <laughs> um, after our uh, on-the-hop minisode. Yes, yes, indeed, which I don't think turned out too badly. I thought it was all right. Uh, yeah, I think it went okay. Yeah. So, so uh, if you were listening to the minisode uh, that we released on Monday from Fright Fest, you may have a rough idea about... The, the, the situation so we did make a decision based on the fact that we were both going to be at Fright Fest to move ahead without a guest this week and do another head to head episode yeah. now as you may remember a couple of weeks ago we did a similar thing um, off the back of a cancellation wherein I defended William Sachs's The Incredible Melton Man now you defended that very capably I must say excellent thank you thank you now on the minisode you have chosen uh, to defend something that I think might come across a little trickier to some people certainly to myself uh yeah i think if I'm, i might have a little bit of a fight on my hands on this one i'm not afraid to admit that um <laughs> i have gone back to 2009 okay. with uh kevin greutert's maligned sequel saw six saw six so uh mitch tell us a little bit about your relationship with this film oh, thanks very much <laughs> a little bit about your relationship with this film why you've brought it here today uh, very cute andy very good um <laughs> So, as regular listeners to the show will know, I am not as much of a horror veteran as uh, many of our listeners are, and certainly not as, uh, in the way that you are. Thank you. So, I got into it much later, and I think that my kind of gateway films into these things are very different from right. most of the people that I talk to about the genre. So, once I kind of uh, started started to realise that this was something I was really into, I worked my way back through the Saw sequels that were out by the time but like you know like they were they were already out at right. that time which as i recall were one two three and four 
Okay. Uh, so by that time, I already had kind of fairly specific opinions about the franchise, which in short, for summary, is that one is superb, two is excellent, three is okay, and four is terrible. <laughs> uh, so I kind of think that five and six, uh, which, I, which were the first two that I saw theatrically, Okay. And five and six, I thought as a one-two punch, felt like a little bit of a turnaround in fortunes for the franchise for me, uh, which is not reflected in the critical reception for either film. Although this film got a softer treatment than Saw Five. Right. Okay. And that, like I say, I'm a I'm a, I'm a fan of both of them. I really like Saw Six. I think that it is great. I'll get into the reasons why shortly. But also, I think that it was cool for me because it was something that I was already invested in that I was going to see. And it's the kind of thing that most people, I guess, wouldn't have really thought of. Going to see a sixth Saw film in the theatre is probably not a big deal mm-hmm. for most genre fans. But for me, it was kind of like something that I already loved, that I already felt like I had a slump and needed to turn around. But it was probably something that I had a little bit more kind of baseline affection for than a lot of people did. Because it was probably a bigger influencer on my taste than it would be for a lot of people. Fair enough. Couple of little facts just straight off the bat here. Excellent. Good, good. Um, Saw 6 was not screened for critics. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it is the lowest grossing Saw film by quite a margin. It is not the poorest reviewed though. No. Also also by quite a margin, might I say. In fairness, it was roundly thrashed at the box office by one of the Paranormal Activity films, I believe. Which one was that, do you know? Uh, I'm going to say three. Three. Two. I would say two, I would be bordering on saying Fair Cop, because I think that Paranormal Activity 2 is pretty great. Three, I'm less struck on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, so, uh, look. Yes. You sat across from me with a little twinkle in your eye um, when you did this, when we went head-to-head last time. Yes, I think I know what's coming. I think you might know what's coming. You've uh, you've, uh, done a few of these episodes now, so you've got a rough idea of the structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, To be fair, if I didn't know what was coming, then... um, You've got no business being here. This is very true, yeah. (laughs) And like, despite the fact that, as I've mentioned before, I think I've subconsciously trained my brain to avoid plot twists, this one's quite easy to spot. (laughs) Yeah, well, we are going to do a a 30-second synopsis. Okay. Um, How are you feeling about that? I'm good to go, I think. Okay, well, um, if you're ready to go, let's uh, let's count you in. So that's three, two, one, go! He may have died three films ago, but the Jigsaw Killer, a.k.a. John Kramer, is still dictating games from beyond the grave. This time, the subject is uh, William Easton, the head of the cutthroat health insurance firm Umbrella Health, who denied his claim for cancer treatment. Elsewhere, after emerging as the sole apprentice to the legacy in Saw 5, Detective Hoffman has to protect himself from a closing-in FBI investigation. Is that you done? Yes, I think so. Time. I understand that I fumbled a little bit there, sentence uh, syntax-wise. Look, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's the second best effort we've had. Behind... Behind Duncan McLeish. Duncan McLeish, yeah, of course. Um, that was controlled. It was measured. Um, there was zero panic. Unlike myself, when I did it. Um, yeah, you. Yeah, that was that was a remarkable, a remarkable achievement. Thank you very much. Uh, I would, however, prefer to not be dubbed the thirty, the thirty second king. <laughs> it's a step up. <laughs> Fuck you. Um, anyway, yes. Uh, so let's get into this. So I think that something that most saw franchise fans mm-hmm. will have forgiven by this point in the series is that these films, especially maybe five and six, relay their narrative almost, I would say, the majority in flashback form. It's pretty labyrinthian, I think, and it jumps around a lot on the timeline. 
and it was only after I chose it that right. I thought that that could be a tricky thing to relay in a conversation like this. So I'm going to assume a little bit of baseline knowledge. I'd say that's fair. Um, but I will probably have to just try and kind of explain a couple of things. But I'm going to do my best not to get too bogged down in over-explanation because that would be boring for everyone. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. also it'll probably confuse the hell out of me as well. Sure, yeah, sure. So we open on a, a kind of typically industrial grimy scene, um, yeah, which uh, has become a kind of trademark of the of the series by this point. Not conducive to sterile wounds at all. Um, uh, no, not at all. Saying nothing of the massive blood loss that pretty much everyone will endure. I yeah. think there's a pretty high risk of tetanus. Oh, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, like if you're asking me if that warehouse or whatever it is is up to code, I would say probably not. Probably not. But like, uh, this is something as well that by this time has become a staple of the series. I think that there's pre-credit straps in two, three, four, and five. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah it's no surprise to open on something gruesome and also the first time and last time in the film I believe that it lands in a trap for two characters that really have nothing to do with either the A or B stories okay so you've got um, I believe it's Eddie and Simone could be yeah they are I'm pretty sure um, and they are two loan sharks and basically the the ironic trap that they're faced with is that they have to extract their own pound of flesh mm-hmm um, in order to succeed. In other words, whichever one slices the most of themselves off themselves in the time will win. And the other one has got... They've both got devices strapped to their head. <laughs> they do. They have the, and, the ridiculous metal device strapped to their heads. Basically, the choice is uh, cut off the pound of flesh or be drilled through the brain. Yes, precisely. these elaborate uh, headgear things that they seem to be wearing. I am the first to admit that the headgear looks a bit stupid. Um, uh, it's also less than two minutes before good old Billy the Puppet puts in an appearance. Yeah, which is always nice. And then we hear the familiar gravelly tones of Tobin Bell, oh. which, to be honest, I uh, watched all of these films in preparation for this conversation. I find that quite intimidating. It becomes quite grating after a while. You watched Jigsaw as well, didn't you? <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that that means that in the last less than 24 hours, you've watched 760 minutes of Saw films. So, um, so fuck my, I think... Fuck that, my pathetic life. So I think, that you, I think that you finding Tobin Bell's voice grating is more on you than him. True. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> it's more. It's not so much that I find Tobin Bell's voice great, and I'm, I find I'm finding the character of Jigsaw quite grating. Okay, okay. Which point. I mean, like I say, or I've, John Kramer, perhaps. I, I, think, I think that any amount. I think that yeah, this that much exposure to anything. Yeah. So guess say. what? He wants to play a game. He does want to play a game, and I would say as an opener, it's pretty good. This is a yeah, it's a particularly grisly one. It is, yeah. Um. So, uh, Simone is a, a kind of like a very a kind of very slight lady in yeah. terms of build and Eddie's let's, I think it's safe to say uh, fair to say he's a larger gentleman yeah, he's, an, he's an ample gentleman yeah um, and, and Seven there's a moment in Seven I think it's to do with the, the greed one where uh, they're in the lawyer's office and the lawyers have to do a very similar um, pound of flesh thing mm-hmm. on the floor of his office yeah um, and, I, and one of the one of the other Brad Pitt Morgan Freeman says something along the lines of what's the most expendable part of the human body the love handle ah uh-huh. So that's uh, certainly what Eddie focuses the the, the, the majority of his attention. Yes, I think handles. I think that this is a good move by him in the sense that you're getting rid of a lot of it, but also the wound is gigantic. Yes. So um, so he tries that and it uh, doesn't pan out. He does have the upper hand for quite a while, um, and I think that it is fair to say that Simone's at a little bit of a disadvantage. <laughs> um, but she does eventually get the upper hand <laughs> um, by. Uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> By slicing, I believe, her left arm off at the elbow. With a cleaver. With a cleaver. She cleavers it off, uh, wins the game. Throws it in the bucket, wins the game. Comes out strong. And it is a strong opener, but it is absolutely uh, a set piece. There is no 
further impact on this uh, on the story from this scene whatsoever rather than just a pretty impressive display of special effects yeah which is I, again i believe true of the pre-credits traps in three and four certainly and i think probably two of memory serves um so but you do like you go straight into a flashback after this <laughs> yeah yeah this one this one is one of the less con- like the less convoluted ones it's pretty much a, a previously on saw thing where you just basically see that the principal investigator protagonist of four uh agent stram is killed. Not strictly true. Go on. There is a there is another flashback right before that. Okay. Um, in which we see Shawnee Smith's character Amanda mm-hmm. riding in a car alongside Cecil, the character yes. who is responsible for the death of John Kramer's unborn son Gideon, and essentially the catalyst for everything that comes after. Yes, that's correct. Um, so we get this weird oh, what's going on here? And then it flashes to, like you say, the flashback of the death of Agent Stram from the end of part five and Detective Hoffman's uh, ongoing manoeuvres. It's, yeah, it's an interesting choice to mash those two flashbacks together because anyone who watches uh, the series will know that and they'll know that also that Amanda and Cecil are both dead at this point. Mm-hmm. And also that their impact on this film is, I would say, probably fairly negligible. <laughs> I, um, would, I would agree. So it's an interesting yeah. thing to introduce and it's quite a strange choice. But yeah, but I think the one that kind of is really driving the story here, the flashbacks you get, is uh, Stram dying um at the end of saw five which is particularly grisly that's well. that's horrible <laughs> that's that's a, that's a horrible way to go being crushed I, to death yeah um but i am always kind of stunned at how people don't know to follow jigsaw's orders at these point at uh, these kind of points so um when he doesn't and he dies i'm kind of like well you know you have got had a front row seat to this for quite some time yeah not knowing to go against your instincts feels like a little bit of a kind of egregious tactical blunder I'm going to come out swinging with something here. Oh, go on. And it's an issue that I have throughout the whole franchise, but certainly further, the further through it we progress, when Hoffman is essentially the... He's our Jigsaw 2.0. He's the last man standing, if you like. Yeah. He is building traps that no man alone could build. That's probably true. This well, room that crushes Stram to death? No way, but he's building this himself. Yeah, but I think that despite the fact that, as we know, pre all of this, John Kramer was an engineer, I think that that... And Hoffman is a policeman. Yes, but I think that despite that, I think that you can't level that accusation as a sole criticism of this film. I'm not. No, I'm just saying uh, as a whole, I find it uh, I find it vexing when I see a, one of these elaborate traps that he's got set up, and I, I look at it and go, there's no way. He's, no way he's built that himself. This film was driving you crazy then, considering most of the B story takes place in an elaborate kind of like uh, four or five room yeah. thing, which is kind of uh, the, under- the massive undertaking. See, the smaller scale traps, like the very first one we've just talked about, that's these little helmets that are going to drill through the brain. Yeah. I'm absolutely on board with them. That's, I was going to say that sounds relatively simple to set up. I'm sure it's not. Yeah. Yeah, you can imagine one guy doing that, but a room that compacts itself and closes in and crushes a man to death? Ugh, no way. No, I mean, I mean, no. 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 <laughs> but uh, yeah, we do flash back to the death of Agent Stram and I guess the... The reemergence, if you like, of Hoffman as the new Jigsaw. Yeah, and and they don't push on with that right away, but I think that, that I genuinely believe that the reason that that is there is, I think they previously on Saw uh, is the best way I can describe it. And uh, it was Barry Delgarno, Delgarno Barry on Twitter, sure. used that term earlier, and I think that that is accurate. I think that that's why they led with that. Uh, because instead of pursuing that directly, we instead meet William Easton. Yeah, he is a claims investigator for a medical insurance company. Umbrella Health, yes. Umbre- Umbrella. 
Umbrella Health, I believe. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I'm willing to admit that his character is cartoonishly villainous. Um, <laughs> yeah, to the point where he has a piranha tank in his office. I love the fact that he's got a piranha no, tank. It's, in his uh, it's, I, it's too it, on the nose. It's. I think it's gloriously on the nose. <laughs> um, he and his uh, team of claims investigators, uh, this six-strong group of smug millennials called the Dog Pit, yeah, wankers, one and all. Oh, um, yeah, without yeah. exception. Yeah, basically kind of uh, pick holes in people's health insurance claims. And, uh, and an attempt to fuck them out of their health insurance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, 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 that's precisely. <laughs> By the way, the fuck the US uh, health insurance system. I yeah. just wanted to just drop that in there right now. Uh, it's a fucking shambles. And I, a disgrace. I actually think this is one of the reasons why I, I kind of gravitate towards this film. Because I think that it would be, I think it's quite admirable that the sixth installment of the Saw series was the first one where they earnestly tried something that resembled social commentary. Yeah, and they do. They do. They they batter us <laughs> over an hour and a half. They absolutely bludgeon us with facts and figures and information about how terrible the US medical insurance system is, which we already know. I like the fact that, I mean, it's a franchise that's very unsubtle in pretty much every other way. But I think it's quite cool that they tried to explore what was and still is a kind of like live issue. Yeah. And I also think that it shouldn't really come as a surprise to anybody that they didn't handle it in the most nuanced way. But they do handle it in a way that I think is very entertaining and I think it does get the point across. It makes it harder to, to root for anyone though, I would say. That's fair, yeah. Because as far as I'm concerned, anyone who's engaging in the, these kind of behaviours as their, their job they're pretty reprehensible people in the first place. I it didn't really bother me that there wasn't like there, there was an absence of a person to root for in the B story, but although that is kind of the first time that that's happened, because just again, just for color, and I'm assuming that most people that listen will know this that like since the second film, basically how these have worked is that you've got the kind of A plot which moves to, moves the wider arc of the, of the series story forward. And then you've got the B story, which is somebody who is apparently a stranger, but ends up kind of being connected to the story in a way that isn't immediately obvious. And uh, that's pretty much, I think, done for padding, entertainment and bonus traps. Yep, I think uh, there are people to root for in this. I think certainly the, the mother and son are the only people that are really sympathetic for. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and we don't really fully understand why that is until a fair bit later, but sure. we can we can get to that. But um, so yeah, well, William is like I say. I mean, I think that um, I think Peter Eitenbridge, who's playing him here, does a fine job. Yeah, the, the everything that's happening there. I mean, it's kind of like sitting having a whiskey, talking about how successful he's been, and. Uh, one of the dog pit wankers comes up and talks about how if they catch this person on this technicality, it'll save them 200 grand. I mean, like, it makes no attempt to kid you on that you're not just watching seven dickheads having a conversation. <laughs> um, so, but considering that, I think that, like, he's not as OTT as he might have been. No, I mean, I think I mean, he, he's, I think he's he, not quite moustache twirling level of, uh, of villain. Yeah, I mean... He's I th- very much a, a shot and tie, high-flying villain. Yeah, it's not like the, it's not like you would get like a soft focus flashback of him tying someone to trail tra- uh, to railway tracks. Yeah, or something he's like not that, got yeah. a cane with a knife in the handle. No, and I th- and, and uh, yeah, I th- like I say, I think that in a film that I am the first to admit is not sh- like not without its share of ropey performances. Um, I think that he comes out as kind of like a stronger link in the chain. Right. Okay. Over the measure. Anyway, so the way that this is presented and the way that we get the kind of like very hardline insight into how horrendous this farm and what they do is. Is that uh, we meet a character, uh, Harold Abbott. Yeah, played by George Newbern. Okay, George Newbern. Yep. Nicely done. He ultimately dies. 
Um, he's refused treatment for a, a heart condition. Because of a misrepresentation on his application. Yeah, based on gum disease. Gum disease, which can lead to heart disease. Okay. I have, I, I am not conversant enough with how cutthroat this can be to know how plausible this is. Annoyingly, it sounds plausible. It, yeah. Like, I'm not sitting going, that would never happen, because it kind of sounds like it's exactly what happens. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I, honestly, I think that under the circumstances, that's just about enough. Yeah. I think the fact that it's an approximation of something that could happen is probably all it needs to be. I think in isolation, George Newbern's performance in this office scene is the best performance in the whole film. Wow. I think he sells his the desperation that he's feeling and the kind of... Um, I mean, he's got nowhere else to turn now. He's pretty much been left to die like, without any coverage for his any medical treatment that he might need. Yeah, and I think that, again, I mean, and I, I am ve- I, coming into this very aware of this film's flaws. Mm-hmm. And I think that the lack of subtlety in how this issue is approached is something that never really lets up and i don't like i don't and in a lot of ways i don't mind how blunt force it is but dialogue less so and i think that he he puts in a good performance here when the material is kind of blunt force to a fault yeah yeah Uh, (laughs) when he's like oh you're criminals and it's like oh you're signing a death warrant and all this stuff it's kind of it's very on the nose but it is very embattened and i think he does do an okay job now we get like Hoffman goes and uh, has a wee chat with uh, Simone, the survivor from the pre-credits. Sure, yeah. Um, where I think that actually he like he's kind of strangely smug towards her. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, Costas Mandalore, who plays Hoffman, spends a lot of the film just walking around pouting. That is, yeah, he does. He does. I think that he spent a lot of his acting career doing that. <laughs> And it's not just in, like I say, I watched a lot of these films. I've seen an awful lot of blood in the last kind of 20 odd hours. He does it a lot. He does indeed. Um, But at this point, there's this kind of introduction of a theory that the the real kind of culprit, Mm -hmm. the real kind of mole, was uh, Stram. Stram. Because his fingerprints are at the scene. Yeah. In what I think is absolutely preposterous, but I do really like it. <laughs> we'll come on to that. Um, yeah, it's 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 nonsense. Uh, so I think it's worth pointing out at this point that although um, Hoffman is the now sole apprentice, as it would appear, well, he's he's the master now. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, to the kind of Jigsaw legacy and the games and so on, but there is still the kind of the presence of uh, John Kramer's wife, Jill Tuck. Jill Tuck. Betsy um, Russell. Who, yeah. again, I think probably kind of coming in on the lower end of the spectrum performance-wise with some of this. Again, she's given nothing to do apart from, again, pout and open and close a box just over and over again. <laughs> like, <laughs> she spends so much time just opening and closing this fucking box and shuffling envelopes. Yeah, it's 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 kind of Chekhov's box. Yeah. But it's a very, it's a very obvious. Yeah, the, the box has got. There's obviously a point to the box, but I think it's telegraphed quite early what it's going to be. Well, he's um, let because you kind of cut then to a video will reading. Yep. Um, from Jigsaw slash John, we'll call him Jigsaw. Uh, see, bald Tobin Bell. I say bald Tobin Bell. We're talking cancer of chemotherapy. Uh, John Kramer here looks like Mister Burns. It does look a bit like Mr. Burns. Yeah. That's fair. I've um, I got to ask, so Tobin Bell, obviously, he plays Jigsaw. It's, sure. it's it's the iconic role of the series. What's your take on his performances in general in these? I like him. Um, like I say, I found him, the character of John Kramer to become quite great and, and to lose a lot of the sympathy that you might have for him early on because they try to make they try to kind of make him a sympathetic character. But I feel like you totally lose that in the minute that he injects all these apprentices and all this other stuff into it. But I think he gives a good performance. Um, I like when he is John Kramer. 
when you see him like with his wife and you see him just relating with people mm-hmm. and it's when he's jigsaw that I'm I'm having the, the biggest issues with him I think and see like one thing I would say though is I mean because I, I would agree that as the films go on because obviously again just very quickly for background obviously what we know about John Kramer is that he kind of uh, got very heavily disillusioned with life prior mm-hmm. to the events of the film when his unborn child was killed yeah was kind of a prisoner of his own kind of apathy until he attempted to kill himself by driving a car off a cliff, survived, and then was re-energised and became this killer that... Did he not try to drive himself off the bridge after his cancer? That's correct. Yes, that's right. So he's diagnosed with brain cancer. Yeah. And uh, basically, yeah, tries to kill himself. Yeah. Uh, Fails, but then kind of uh, comes re-energised with this, what he thinks is going to be this kind of revolutionary treatment of putting people through, people who don't value their lives through these punishments that will help them find some kind of appreciation yes um and i mean i really like this i really like this as a as like an mo i think and it's I, brilliant as do i but I, I feel that that gets muddied um it really does and it just becomes an excuse to be cruel to people yeah but i think though that is that more of a character flaw than a story flaw is it possible that as it goes on and it kind of it perhaps be- he becomes more desensitized to it uh, yeah, um, and I mean, what? like as his is as his own condition deteriorates, I don't think that it's out of the question that like realizing kind of that he'll make other people value their lives, but he's kind of on his way out. But he right up until the end, right up until almost the moment he dies, he is talking about the value of human life. Yeah, it, and, and it kind of seems counterproductive then that he does seem so so unnecessarily cruel and villainous mm-hmm. later on. I I think that there's an argument to be made that his kind of like turning a blind eye to his own hypocrisy about it could be the product of a deteriorating mind. I'm not going to sit here and and discuss uh, the effects of a brain tumour on somebody's personality, which... <laughs> I wasn't talking necessarily about a brain tumour. I'm talking about, if, like, if, if this is your... Um... Yeah, if, like, if this is your MO and you're getting involved with an ever-amounting body count kind of thing, mm-hmm. who's to say that he isn't? That there's an element in there that's of kind of bloodlust that's starting to take over or muscle in. Perhaps. Uh, but I understand that this is a leap. <laughs> There's a lot of kind of police procedural stuff in this that it feels like filler to me. Yeah, um, I know. I, I, where they go over the same shit over and over again. It's 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 got to be Agent Stram and Agent Perez comes back. Um, yeah, assumed she, assumed dead from four. Assumed dead and uh, pre- played as dead in an attempt to draw. Is it an, an attempt to draw Jigsaw out? Or I, I'm I'm not really sure. But basically, she gets shot in the face with some ceramics in part four i think it was like um is it not kind of when they didn't know if it was stram or whoever they kind of they deliberately kind of shielded the fact that she was recovering yeah i think for her for her protection right yeah okay everybody is so fucking suspicious of hoffman everybody knows it's him are they how fucking stupid are they i I think that perez is very suspicious of hoffman yeah well she was stram's partner she's known him a long time yeah so i think that she's probably got a lot more of a dog in the fight and has probably got and I would say that she's probably had more access to more information. And I think her she's got a better view of the, the wider picture. So I think it's natural for her to be the most suspicious. I would say Ericsson, the chief kind of guy, seems yeah. less so. Uh, but I also think that he might be an idiot. <laughs> See, going back to how stupid are people that they don't realise that Hoffman's in on it. They spend so much time going over the facts that one of the first victims was this fucking guy who killed Hoffman's sister. Yeah, so this, I think... this, And he just keeps kind of trying to backpedal and wheedle his way out of it. And obviously we're in on it now. We know who he is, but 
it's so fucking transparent that he's in on it. I think that you've got somebody wrestling with the material a little bit here when you've got Costas Mandalore who plays Hoffman kind of trying to po- uh, to poker face it through this scene. And I really, I, I like how they come across it, you know, like because obviously one of Jigsaw's kind of trademarks is kind of remove, cutting the puzzle piece shape of flesh off of the victims. Yeah. And they realise that it's a different knife. Yeah, it's a serrated blade. Instead, um, and the only other time that that blade was used in a Jigsaw victim was in... The opening, the opening one from Saw Five, which is, uh, yeah, the, as you find out, and in, the one that Hoffman had designed, yeah, for the person that he killed his sister. So I quite like the way that that emerges. I like the the way that comes to light because they obviously they don't know that Hoffman was responsible for the first one, but it's pretty strange that he's not a suspect. <laughs> yeah, like he's still at work. Like he's not even been put on like administrative leave while they investigate or anything. No, <laughs> that's stuff like. He's allowed to just fucking come and go as he pleases. He's in the evidence room rifling through stuff. People are coming in and speaking to him. They're like, uh, Detective Hoffman, uh, they want to speak to you in there. They've found something new. Uh, they've found fingerprints. And he's just standing, like, putting shit in his pockets. Like, no, like, they're all fucking stupid. I think that this is no place to discuss the bureaucracy of these oh, kinds right, of things. Okay, right, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, Do you know what else I'm sick of? Go on. The pig mask nonsense. Uh, yeah, so every every time anyone who's going to participate in a game, when you see a flashback when they're getting kidnapped, they are abducted by a person in a pig mask. Yeah, which inevitably pops out a cupboard, pops up, just appears behind them, and bold of the pig mask thing. Again, you have watched approximately, you've watched more than 10 hours of these in the last day. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that that's, uh, it's a trademark of the franchise, and I think that like once you kind of set your story that that needs to be there, it needs to be There's there. There's at least two in this film alone. There are two, yeah. There's prob- potentially more than that in this film because there's an extended period of time when they're kind of gathering the numerous victims together where the, the pig mask thing keeps popping up behind people. Be done with it. We know now. We know who it is. <laughs> Discard the pig mask. Well, at this point, we do get one flashback that I think is cool. We understand why Jill is kind of on board. Right. With the legacy because she works with uh, drug addicts. Sure. And has previously written off the old apprentice, apprentice Amanda as having been a lost cause. Yeah. And then John kind of presents her to Jill as this kind of like, it worked, your your methods didn't, mine did. Yeah, but given what we know about Amanda, worst possible example. Yeah, but she doesn't know that. Jill doesn't know that. <laughs> she, she doesn't know that, but as it kind of comes out in Saw 3, she's off her fucking nut. Oh, she absolutely is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like I say, I mean, I think that like as a, at a surface level, you know, it's kind of like because she's very much like, oh, he helped me, yeah, he turned my life around, kind of thing. But yeah, no, I get it, and and I do think that is uh, that has an effect on Jill, and so much as she, I guess, without ever fully condoning what John's doing, she understands perhaps his motivations. Definitely, I think, I think, that, I think that that's why that's there. But look, what we're here for in these films is traps. We sure are, and um, these kick in a pretty high gear at this point because, uh, as you discussed, pig mask, pig mask abduction, that happens to old health insurance guy William. Yeah, after he uh, inadvertently Unwe- shoots a shoots a man yeah. multiple times, yeah, shoots after- a security guard multiple times. Yeah, he mistakes a security guard for an intruder, and what I think is an okay fake out kind of thing. He sees this uh, this what he thinks is an intruder grabs a gun from under his desk shoots him as it turns there's no word on that poor man well I think that like and at the risk of giving it at the risk risk of jumping ahead even if William did escape the traps that he ends up going through he was coming out into the real world into a multitude of problems (laughs) 
because he's probably wanted for murder. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so he accidentally kills a security guard that he thinks is a guy coming after him. As it turns out, there is a guy coming after him in a pig mask. And then William wakes, uh, wakes up inside the warehouse. Mm-hmm. And, and we have trap number one. And Proper. yeah, and it's at this point that we kind of understand like what the theme is of the B story. As I, I think that we all kind of saw it coming, but it's at this point that it's set out, which is basically... And it's where I think the, the film kind of dials up the attempted social commentary that it does yeah, because um, you get this kind of explanation that he effectively makes life or death decisions from the comfort of an office mm-hmm. every day, kind of like fairly ruthless life or death decisions. Yeah, based and, on a formula that he created himself. Yes, that's right. A um, metric for whether or not someone is deserving or yeah, kind of whether, whether or not I guess it's whether they're a risk or not. Yeah, yeah. So it's like so it's it's framed as being very discompassionate, which it is, and kind of like very much motivated by this kind of bloodless pursuit of money. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's presented in the sense that like he makes these decisions every day, and now he's going to have to make some, but and obviously in much more on the nose, much more brutal fashion, with uh, people right in front of him. So yeah, the first trap here is one of my favorites. Okay. Um, and it's I believe that the other person is a janitor from Umbrella Health, who you see fleetingly at best earlier on uh, on a walk through the office. Yeah, um, smoking. I believe yeah. certainly uh, he, this guy, as we're told, uh, has been smoking for most of his life. Again, how uh, Jake Sod knew that information is questionable. Honestly, don't get me. Fucking, um, don't get me fucking started. But basically, yeah, they they both have like gas masks on, and um. Every time they take a breath, the clamps around them, the big metal clamps around them, will get closer to them and eventually crush their rib cages. Correct. Yeah. Uh, unsurprisingly, William wins this one, mm-hmm. but it's a. I, I, I have a real problem with the moment where it's bad enough what's happening to both of them. Yeah. Right? But certainly to the the security card guy, I have a real problem when they show you him pissing himself. I feel like you you don't need it. I feel like it just comes across as one further indignity to that guy that you just straight up don't need. That's a trope uh, that is overused in horror in general. I yeah. think. I think sometimes you can get away with using the the pissing yourself thing, um, but here it feels especially cruel. But I would say that kind of like it's it's in, in the middle of a scene that is kind of has a lot of contempt for its characters. So I I guess I wasn't surprised by it and and I wasn't really out by it. But it's interesting that it's something that kind of that kind of got to you. It's fine uh, to include stuff like that, but I feel like in this moment it just felt unnecessarily dehumanizing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Um, however, I think that the way the scene unfolds is really good. I think it's really tense. I like that. I, and I think that often one thing that, like, regardless of the other problems that some of these films have, I think that when it gets to the actual trap sequences, they do play them out in a way that is really suspenseful generally. Yeah, I think that for the most part that is true, uh, and I think that again this is true in terms of like amping, amping up the gross factor. That's something they do in every film. Like they sound design the living hell out of the kind of more grisly moments. Oh yeah, to to the point where it's uh, un- unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, I quite like that. I think it's all just kind of part of it. I think these things are supposed to feel kind of overblown. Hey, I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and uh, <laughs> say that uh, I don't do likewise to elicit a reaction in my stuff. Because I fucking do. Well, yeah, and I think that that's okay. I think that like like that's just using the tools that are available to you to get reactions from people. Yeah, and I think that that's fine. So yeah, William. So William passes the first test. The uh, the janitor is killed very unceremoniously, as you said. Yeah. Yep. Um, but he has been told at the start of this that if he can't complete this, or he'll never see his family again. That's true. Yeah, he'll never see his family again. He also has explosive cuffs on his hands and legs. Yes, and he'll get he the has heat to contend with. Passing every trap will allow him to remove one of these. 
That's right. Yeah. And again, we're kind of alluding to, to where this goes, but once he's told that he'll never see his family again, and what is and what is kind of a very serious case of cinematic misdirection, mm-hmm. we then cut to a woman and her son. Yeah. That you obviously mentally connect um, will be his wife and son. Yeah. I, I love the fact that they do this, and I'm quite happy to admit that I fell for the hook, line, and sinker the first time I saw it. I absolutely did the same. Uh, and I think that actually we'll get into it. But and I, think I did it again today. Oh, cool. Good. Uh, I did it again today. I'd totally forgotten about it. Um, I think that I think that the and again this is this will come later, but I think that the way that this film manages its twists is really good. Right. Um, but yeah, so it's these people as presented are uh, William's wife and son. They are they are somewhere else, but a, another similarly grimy looking room. <laughs> um, a big vat of acid in the middle of the room. Uh, I was going to say of indeterminate purpose, but if there's acid there, it's only really for one purpose. Um, and a big lever that says live or die, and there's no real explanation at this point why. Uh, who that applies to or what yeah. it'll do we get some stuff between them that at this point doesn't really matter no I suppose not I guess it's just for colour yeah just to kind of introduce you to those characters and speaking of characters you get not that you get introduced to another kidnapping that happens is Pamela Jenkins who's this uh, kind of very sensationalist reporter yeah, who's she... digging into every angle of this jigsaw mystery and um, yeah she's she's kidnapped and uh, she's lumped into the same room as them yeah um, but yeah, again, kind of in the kind of final roll of the dice in the misdirection that we're talking about, the son asks why are we here, and uh, the wife says we're here because of your father. Yep. And that's all you get for there for now. Um, I don't want to dig too much into the I don't want to dig too much into the flashbacks in this because if you do, then I think that yeah, you're at real risk again. Uh, one one that I do want to kind of touch on is I think there's some interesting rivalry stuff um, that starts getting built up between Hoffman and Amanda when they're both kind of apprenticing for John. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting stuff there, but then the kind of payoff to it makes absolutely no fucking sense. I and mean, I'll come to that at the point, but certainly when the first few times you see it, you're like, oh, this could be this could be interesting. Um, that they're both kind of vying for Jigsaw's attention. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that it's probably. I don't think that it'll do any harm to talk about how that pans out now. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, um, what happens is uh, at one point Hoffman writes a letter to Amanda, puts it in a drawer. Basically, the content of the letter is, I know that you were with Cecil when he broke into the into the clinic and caused the death of Gideon. Which, years, was, which was accidental. Which sure. was accidental, but years and years before, there is absolutely no fucking way on this earth that Hoffman would be privy to that knowledge. Yeah, I think that trying to put one together would involve, to quote Mr. Preston DeFrancis, a narrative pill that is a little too tricky to swallow. Yeah, and that's what they're asking us to do here. They're asking us to make the leap and to believe in that somehow Hoffman, years and years before he was ever ever anywhere near Jigsaw, happened to see this event in the middle of the night with people who, uh, at this point, were nobody people. Yep. <laughs> like, and a terrible thing happened, but he... It's fucking baloney. And, yeah, I'll, 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 yeah, I'll give you the pass on that. Definitely. Bunk him. <laughs> bunk him. Right? Yep. No, that's fair. Cool. That's perfectly legitimate. So they build it up and it goes fucking nowhere. But essentially, he's saying, look, you need to do this thing or I'm going to tell Jigsaw that you that, that you were involved. But it's bollocks. Ah, uh, yeah. Reasonable. And ultimately, that results in the death of Amanda. removes her from the equation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which, if anything, I think is what this film, what, what the kind of, like, what the story needs. It's kind of hasty removal of main players to kind of thin it down at this point in the series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amanda had no there was no reason to bring Amanda back at all really but uh, carry on carry uh, yeah, on yeah it's, 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 oh. it's pretty much the start of the ending but yeah so uh, we end up in uh, another uh, another trap for William is next um, yeah. 
Uh, it's one where um, he has to choose. Again, it's a live or die situation. He's got two employees from Umbrella Health, one of whom is a young man, a very healthy man with no family. Yep. And one is a, an older, weaker woman who has a larger family. And basically, yeah, the idea is that Umbrella Health would only give coverage to the young man mm-hmm. and uh, not to the older lady. But when faced with having to choose which one will live or die, he opts to kill the young man, which obviously kind of makes correct decision. Which I wow, Um, (laughs) but yeah, but but ultimately does kind of like uh, exposes him as a um, as a hypocrite, Mm -hmm. as a trap. I think that this is okay for the point that it's making. I think it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Again, it's incredibly on the nose, but it's probably the most astute thing that it does in terms of serving the healthcare. Yeah, sure. Strand. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, I think that it's because it's I feel kind of, the traps get more and more oblique in their efforts at uh, kind of trying to get this message across. There's one that I really don't like. Right, okay. Um, which we'll get to in a sec uh, because it's not too far away. But um, I think that this this is kind of probably, again, I think like the actual mechanism of it is okay. But I think that the kind of irony element of it is stronger here. And I think that that's kind of something that the traps in general over the later installments start to lose. Yeah. So as you say, there's like quite a lot of flashback hopping going on here, and I don't yeah. want to dig into that too much because I yeah. think that we're in, you're in danger of getting a little too bogged down. It's, and it's just to tie up non-essential threads. Loose ends. Really what I think um, yeah. But I think that there's there's one that does need to be there. Right. Well, there's one that I think is framed as being more important than the others, at least. Okay. And that would be when John is, or Jigsaw, well, it's John, I guess, at this point, mm-hmm. is in the offices of William in a flashback looking for, um, basically floating the idea and investigating whether or not his insurance, because this at this point you find out obviously he's he was cut his health insurance was through William's company, of course, <laughs> um, naturally. Yeah. Um, yep. And he's basically, I think, there to inquire about whether or not um, his coverage would extend to an experimental procedure um, in Europe. In Europe? Yeah. Non specifically yeah. Europe. Uh, I think there is a country mentioned. Okay. But I, I can't remember. Um, and William tells him that it will not. It and, will not. No. Uh, if he uh, if he goes for it, tries it, and it doesn't work, then it invalidates his cover, and Umbrella can't uh, insure him at all. Correct. And this leads into uh, what I think is kind of one of the more on the nose kind of examinations of the healthcare, like the deriding of the American healthcare system that happens in the film. Yeah, John uh, points out the piranhas and brings the, makes the piranha part of the part of the conversation yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely foregrounds what would have otherwise been a nice background touch yeah <laughs> but uh yeah uh he's he's told that you're, you're not going to be covered for this and kind of uh, william starts floating the money and figures and stuff and john's like look don't talk to me about money i've got plenty of money so the question then comes to me well why don't you just fucking go to europe then if you've got all this money like you're you're in a position that thousands of americans look at your, your poor bastard earlier who died Mm-hmm. you're in a position that these people aren't lucky enough to be in yeah that's very true you I, just I, fuck off to I, Europe and get your treatment it's one of those things and it kind of bothers me that this film creates a logic problem for itself <laughs> that it doesn't need to have okay and it's just by a piece of narrative carelessness okay that that happens because you've pointed out there and I mean I'm quite happy to admit that that's a perfectly valid comment that I think that you didn't need to have a personal connection between John and William for the point of this to to still resonate. It's absolutely absolutely valid. This, this is the situation. This is the situation all across America. Then yeah, then 
you could pick any number of these these companies. You could pick pretty much any one of them. Yeah, and carry the film out throughout that. And I mean, I think that despite the, the fact that that this is how he came across the information, that's I mean, okay, fine. But I think that it's not something that needs to be there. And we did talk about this a little bit before we came on, and you made a pretty valid point about how this affects what we know about Jigsaw's motives. Mm-hmm. It, it, this to me makes him seem vindictive and malicious in a way that he always tried not to be or it, it certainly seemed that the film made moves to for him not to be yeah i think that this like this film hits a problem that it could have avoided right and that's frustrating to me because like i say there's lots of things about this film that i do like and i think that when it's doing its kind of healthcare commentary side of it i think that that works much better in these saw style when it is kind of delivered in these very visceral moments Mm-hmm. And I think that where it threatens to slip up are in conversations like these. Right. But I understand why the flashback's there. It's to establish a personal connection to it. But I think that you actually, you made a point that I hadn't really considered before, which is that the personal connection has never needed to exist before and probably doesn't need to here. It's also the first film that uh, John appears personally in videos to people. Very true. Although, would I be correct in saying not victims? Um, I believe, yeah. Um, he doesn't appear with his own face talking directly to people. No. But he I don't, does in this. Which one? He appears uh, a couple of times on TVs talking to William directly. To William? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Luminant, he's looming into, into camera. Uh-huh. Um, speaking directly to people, which again, to me, is, in, is him inserting himself too far into it. Yeah, there's an element. I mean, I, mean I, don't under, I don't know if that necessarily bothers me. I think that in the other films there's an element of a need to preserve the mystery right. of who he is, which is possibly, I would say, kind of less necessary here. Mm-hmm. But I would, but it's definitely, it's a noticeable break. But this is John speaking directly to this guy now. Which, again, I think, because like I say, I could make the argument to defend, like, in response to what you said about um, this being more personal than the others, and you have no problem with that, the defense of that that I would gravitate towards would be saying that this could be how he just came across it. This is how he knows this injustice is happening. This is how he okay. puts a, this is how he puts a human face, a blameworthy human face. On a massive situation. On a massive situation. And this is kind of like his microcosmic way of dealing with it. <laughs> um, it's a pretty fucking heavy way. But um but I think that that is a stretch and I think that the reason that, that becomes a stretch and this is annoying me because this is something this is an element of the film I'm actively trying to defend and it and <laughs> I don't like. I'm arguing with how the film presents it instead of arguing with you. Right. No. 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 That's that's fine. Like, but, but but that's but it's annoying to me speaking as the person who's picked it because because <laughs> um, I should I should be trying to kind of bat away your points rather than bat away things that are this obvious. Right. And I think that when he's when he's talking directly to people in a way that he hasn't done in the previous films, I would say that like my attempts to frame this as him serendipitously coming across something that he can try and to fix mm-hmm. kind of start to fade from view. In the past, he's always used the tapes, or he's used Billy. The Billy uh, the Puppet. As his, as his kind of mouthpiece, if you like. But here, that's him. It's also kind of like, it's an interesting thing to leave out, because the Billy, the Billy Puppet is such a vital piece of iconography for the series as well. But Billy gets a look in, though, like in, the, oh, yeah, first, in like, the first couple of minutes. Yeah, he's not um, he's not exercised completely, but yeah. it's such a... It's like, he's dialed back in a way that he's not in any of the other films. That's definitely true, and I think even from uh, the final chapter that followed this one... <laughs> So it's after this though we cut straight back because obviously like you're getting to the point the segment of a saw film where you can't go any really any longer than ten or fifteen minutes without having a trap, and we have the worst one. I would say this one's the worst one. This is the boiler room. William's attorney. Yeah. Is below him on kind of a two a two story. Yeah. Room, basically, yeah. Kind mm-hmm. of like. Mm-hmm. 
they have a certain amount of time to get her through there before inevitably this contraption kills her that's kind of strapped to her. Uh, we find it pretty quick that to get her through, he basically has to burn himself. The, she has to navigate a series of um, mesh tunnels, if you like, um, yeah. and they are lined with steam vents. Yeah. And for him to allow her to navigate successfully, he has to pull a handle, burning himself in the process, turning off the steam vents so that she can pass. Yeah. And now I think that, again, this because we'll come straight out of the trap that I think represents the metaphor and the comment on it best into the one that represents it the worst. Right. Because um, I think that, like I say, I think that the one with the young man and the older woman is spot on. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that it's uh, it's it's the best crystallization of the point of the film mm-hmm. that you get. Whereas this feels needlessly vindictive in a way that is just kind of getting at him for the hell of it. Yeah. Kind of thing. Or I would also say the same for the next one, but we'll get to that when we get there. But this one, let's gloss by it as much as possible. This trap, it's it's pretty shit. Um, he also has a key that's hidden inside his stomach. Yeah, it's kind of sort um, of side. Yeah. Yeah, and she, yeah, gets- if he gets the key out, he could free her, but yeah. Something yeah, like yeah, it's it's it, it it just doesn't land. Yeah, not at it, all. It doesn't connect, and I mean, I just want to stop at this point and say that, like, I think that lo- there's are a fair few elements of this film that don't really coalesce. <laughs> right. Um, okay. But I think that what it what it does well is kind of it does kind of its heavy lifting and the things that I think make it a convincing entry in the franchise a little later. Right. But I would concede at this point, and it's something that I hadn't watched this for a while, much in the same way as uh, when Preston was on last week with Halloween H2O. And I think when he watched it back and kind of spotted some problematic elements that he hadn't really clocked before, I was getting this a bit with this stretch of this film. Okay. Um, and I would say that, yeah, I've, the, the the point that I felt, I was like, kind of held my hands up and was like, I can't really... Uh, <laughs> I can't really defend this part. Sure. Um, sure. It's this uh, trap. I hate it. Right. Okay. Um, I think but it's. The, I would. I would argue because we move pretty quickly into the next trap. Yeah. Um, which is the carousel, and I firmly believe the carousel trap in this film only exists to watch these assholes die. <laughs> I really do. I don't feel that it's really bringing anything to his battle. Really, it's the standard choose who lives, choose who dies. It's a choose choose who lives, choose who dies because that's what you do for a job. Yeah, I guess is the point. I can understand why that's on its own is not enough. That's the message throughout this whole film. Yeah. I feel that these two traps, it's lost slightly. Um, I think this one less so than the one that came before it. But I think that again, the re- the main reason that it happens is to give you a little bit of catharsis to see, um, yeah, these dog pit guys kind of get shot. Yeah, visually, it's a pretty cool trap. They're all yeah, tied to chairs uh, and a large the, carousel. The device. biggest, uh, the the most amount of victims in a single trap. In any of in the, the series, in, yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's quite correct. One of the longest set pieces in the whole the whole series as well. It's eight minutes long. Eight minutes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because uh, there's all six members of the dog pit tied to chairs that are rotating around. Again, I think in a kind of uh, in a kind of fairly needlessly masochistic way, William has to choose to kill them. I think that the psychological trauma of having to kill four out of six of your kind of work Employees. underlings, yeah, would probably be traumatic enough, but it wouldn't be a Saw film if he didn't also have to visit some physical pain on himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, he has to pick four of them to die, but every time it does, he kind of gets, he has to push a button that basically drives a bolt into his hand. Yeah. His hand would be too fucked to press that more than once. Uh, yes, I think he would have to do it possibly maximum twice with one hand and then potentially with your feet. <laughs> right. To okay. retain the use of one hand for the next round. You're only choosing two. Out of the six, he's allowed to save two. That's correct. Yes, that's right. So, that's but right. I feel after the first time on the one hand, your hands you're knackered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> your hands fucking useless. I would say that's probably true. 
I think that th- this actual se- like this actual sequence the way it unfolds is fine mm-hmm. in terms of effects, in terms of the the way that it looks. I yeah, think, I, I, I like the tra- I like the trap overall. I, I think it's all pretty um, good. Um, yeah, I think that this is fine. Um, the I would say the only thing that kind of the only thing that kind of uh, sticks out here is the overacting of the last guy that dies. <laughs> yeah, he's got a message to get across. Like, like I think he really. His character exists to drive home exactly what William has done. Oh yeah, there's totally like um, there's this film is, and again for for the most part of the film, I don't it's it's saw it's not going to handle anything with any particular level of nuance. I don't mind the fact that in terms of set pieces, in terms of characters, this film is littered with what is basically like moral outrage placekeepers. <laughs> right okay yeah. you know where it's yeah. like every now and again something <laughs> something will just like pop up to just be like isn't this guy awful isn't what he does terrible and it's like that's fine i'm okay <laughs> with that like i i personally that doesn't bother me i think that the film does its worst work when people are trying to have measured conversations about healthcare reform yeah and let's i think it. like i think that I mean, it's much better when it's brutal because that's what you're there, that's to, see. What there to see like, and i think that trying to do something like this through that lens is a good way to get the point across Okay. Whereas I think that trying to do it through kind of, like I say, measured discussion is a massive misfire because it's something that the series hasn't been particularly good at up to this point. True, absolutely true. Yeah. So um, so I th- I think that like I like the kind of the successful metaphorical traps as much as I dislike the needless kind of heavy-handed conversations that we have about it. Okay. To that end, I think that yeah, the the only kind of uh the only kind of very overt one that I don't like is the guy kind of hysterically shrieking when you kill it when you're killing me. You, you look, look at, at me, me when when you're killing me. Um, which again is obviously the thing that he never does because all the decisions are made in an office and this kind of thing. Yeah, and I think and like I say, I think that this film does a lot of good work with um the message it's trying to get across. This is probably the only time that I start to feel really burned out on the message. <laughs> yeah, as as brutally it bludgeons you with a message uh yes that is it very loses, true. i feel that this film and i know it, it, it feels like this film's lost fun by this point okay it's it's no longer fun i feel that the series actually is no longer fun by this point i my interpret, interpretation of this is you'll be stunned to learn a little less harsh than that <laughs> i because I, I, I i really like i don't want to jump around with the sequels too much but i liked five a lot mm-hmm um, and I liked the platform of the traps in that and the teamwork thing. I think that actually probably it serves its overall message more consistently than this film does. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think that the franchise has run out of steam in terms of entertainment value at this point. But I think that this film has reaches a stretch where the stuff that I found entertaining about it just kind of falling to the back burner. And what you have is this kind of muddy stretch of about 20 minutes where it needs to get what it's going. Right, okay. And yeah, I think that one of the things that come comes kind of in service of that is that there's a couple of kind of like fairly workmanlike, in the overall kind of context of the franchise, there's a couple of things that are kind of plain. Right. But this is still a good trap, I would say. Yeah, I would and, agree. And I think that, and it's one that is probably, it's the one in this film that people talk about the most. And it's worth being there for that point because I think that when you're talking about the kind of the bigger moments in the franchise, people talk about this sometimes. And I think so it's worth being there in that way even if the execution doesn't land all the way. Fair enough. I would say it's at this point that we flip fully into Act 3 and it all gets, for me, it all gets very silly very quickly. Right, I want to talk about this then because I think, so the first the first scene I'm assuming that you're talking about is when Ericsson, Perez and Hoffman go to the kind of tech office. The sound office, lab. The sound some lab, kind of, yeah, yeah. Some kind of sound lab. They have figured out, one, that um, the fingerprints found on the eyes of your, your dead guy for the start, mm-hmm. Eddie. Yep. 
that they, yeah, while they may have been Stram's fingerprints, he wasn't alive at the time. Yeah, they lack the moisture and they of talk the fingerprints about, of a dead person. I think they talk about urea and ugh, something else. I don't really know. So they go along and obviously at this point, uh, Hoffman's still backpedalling like a maniac and trying desperately to kind of pretend that he's still a fucking cop. Yeah. Um, oh, it's only to be fair because 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 Costas Mandler only has one facial expression. It's really easy for him to put. Po- it's really easy for him to poker face it because yeah. he's <laughs> the Mandalore Pout. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we get to the the sound lab and the the what what we have here is a, a technician cleaning up the audio of the tape found at the scene of the jigsaw murder, which was the guy who killed Hoffman's. Sister, aka Hoffman's first kind of solo. Hoffman's trap. first solo jigsaw ride. So they are what you're basically watching, and I, I, I'm gonna go to bat for this scene a little bit okay. because obviously how this unfolds in the end, Hoffman realizes that they're gonna figure out that it's him. Well, well, I, and he's just kind of, <laughs> he's just kind of awkwardly walking around the room, waiting, <laughs> walking around the room as the audio is getting cleaned up. He's waiting for the three slowest horses to cross the finish line, <laughs> yeah. and then when when he realizes that they're going to suss it out, he like shoots one, stabs the other, and then uh, throws coffee in Perez's face. Throws coffee in Perez's face. It's a, Perez suffers a lot of facial trauma in this franchise, but yeah. So yeah. um, uh, but basically kills all three of them and then burns the place down. Yeah. Um, this is obviously ludicrous, right? But again, at the same, <laughs> but like. At the same time, I like I I think it's it's a fun set piece, and I like the way that it builds to it. I think that the tension is legit. Okay. And I think that the way it's framed is great because he's kind of walking around looking uncomfortable. I love the fact that while he's kind of having to stand by and watch them figure this out, the line that they're using is right now you're feeling helpless. Yeah. As it gets closer and closer to his voice, I think that that's cool. I think that when he snaps and kills all three of them, he does it in a way that is so fast that it looks like it's lifted from a Bruce Lee film. <laughs> He stabs her about 18 times like an unbelievably quick succession. Oh, yeah, he's like, stabs her 18 times in like seven seconds. Yeah. Uh, what I do love, uh, oh, I, thought I was pissing myself when I was watching this, and he was when he uh, he pulls Stram's hand out the bag and he's walking around like touching Stram's kind of disembodied hand onto things. Yeah. To continue this fucking charade that <laughs> Stram's still alive. He's like wrapping it around the gun, wrapping it around That's the like, knife. He's like touching all the fucking walls. I was like, they've like, already told you this hasn't. This doesn't yeah, work. Like, it, it's so ridiculous seeing him with this rubbery fucking hand, just like dabbing it off stuff. But I think that, like, what you're talking, I think that this is the point, and it's kind of it's at the point where it needs to. I think that it kind of embraces the ridiculousness in a way that it hadn't done for a while, and I kind of feel like it's kind of this is where the film starts to write the ship a little bit for me. Okay. Um, I because th- I think that I understand that the sequence is silly. I think it's fun. Right, uh, because I don't. At do this you point, not? No, I still feel like it's silly, but not in a fun way. That's a shame. It feels like they're still like they've forgotten that they put in the bit about the hand, and then about being able to tell that it's the hand wasn't attached. It is. It is a major question mark. Why he keeps doing it? No, no, he's just got his hand. <laughs> but he's just walking around with a fucking hand in a freezer bag. Like, come on, man! Like the minute I found that that didn't work, I'd have just chucked the fucking hand into the fire. Like, I'd have been like, oh well, that's that one out the window. Everybody fucking knows it's me anyway. There's the hand in the bin. Because yeah, like, he presumably has it on his person like quite a lot of the time. He's all, it's probably just in his... He's always got like this overcoat on. Can you imagine if it just like fell out of his overcoat pocket at like, a, a company picnic or something? It's ridiculous. <laughs> Honestly, this fucking hand. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So, so Hoffman, Perez and uh, Nameless Tech Lab Redshirt are all gone. 
Yeah, yeah. I feel bad for I feel bad for her. Yeah, she wasn't doing anything wrong. No. She was doing her job. No. Uh, she was just following orders. Um, so yeah, we kind of we dig into some fairly important story stuff here, and like you say, it's stuff that kind of there's the logical leap that you expected the audience that the audience are expected to take, which is that Hoffman knows about Amanda's involvement in Jill's miscarriage, right? And how he used that to blackmail her basically into failing the test that was set up for her. Shite. That results in her death in Saw Three, but it become it comes to light that Jill uh, knows about this. Via a copy of the uh, letter, which yeah, is the letter in question, of course. Uh, so that's shown presumably just to set up the final scene of that story, which we're going to get pretty shortly. But we get to, I think, well, that's my favorite part of the film by a mile. Okay, and it's where I think that, like, and one thing I would say is that on this rewatch, I've always watched this as a fan of the franchise and as a fan of this film, but I haven't watched it in a really long time, and I've seen quite a lot more stuff since then. And I think that I am now a little bit better at realizing at spotting kind of like second act slumps right in things that i otherwise enjoy and weirdly as i've seen more stuff and as i've started to think a little bit more critically about things it's something that really bothers me like second act sags are i think kind of needless almost always avoidable and something that i sometimes find it it can be quite hard to recover from in terms of recovering my attention okay so two two points here which is that when i watched this back I thought that this film sags narrative, narratively in the middle in a way that I hitherto hadn't noticed. Okay. Two, it also recovers my attention in a way that other better films, objectively better films, haven't managed. <laughs> All right. But you get to the end of William's test. He gets there. He proclaims that he's won the game. Uh, he gets to the end. Uh, he gets to the room where the woman and child yep. are there. You think, as the viewer, that he's being reunited with the family that we'd heard about at the start, that he was never going to see again if Which he didn't complete he his traps. kind of is, but only in so much as it turns out that Pamela Jenkins, intrepid reporter, is his sister. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think this perfectly fine piece of misdirection. I, In mm-hmm. fact, I think that this is a great piece of misdirection because it turns out that the woman and child that we assumed had been his wife and son were actually the wife and son of Harold Abbott, the man who died, having been denied coverage at the start. I love this. I think that's a great twist. I think it's a, a really great, really effective twist, and like I say, one that I totally forgot about. Yeah, I think it's great. I just, but I, again, I think that like the things that you come to Saw films for, mostly, uh, feel free to jump in on the feedback. Gore and twists. Gore and twists, yeah. <laughs> um, and I would say that the gore, okay, fair enough, doesn't get right all the time. A couple of really good ones in there. Twists, spot on. And it's at this point that again in a way that's obviously extremely blunt force the saw twist music starts playing william realizes um with shattering clarity that it's not his game yeah it's a forgiveness test of the wife and child of harold so that's what the big live die switch is for and harold's wife struggles with the notion of killing uh william her son does has not. no such problem no he, he has no qualms about uh what is uh, what ultimately winds up injecting two gigantic barrels worth of acid into William's body, and he gets burned from the inside out. Great splatting um, half torso effect. Fantastic, yes. Yep. And I think that again, this is when Saw is doing feverishly masochistic stuff like this. I think that it's always when it's at its most kind of gripping. This is this is what we want from yeah. a Saw film. And I think that and I think that. It really delivers that here. You get th- twist, you get gore, all in the one scene. Yeah, and he's kind of, and he's screaming, he's in a lot of pain. When it, do you think? When it cuts back, yeah, it's Captain Obvious over here, but like, um, <laughs> but when it cuts back to, uh, yeah, this extremely bloody 
an extremely grisly scene of a half torso dropping to its knees and the guts spilling out over the floor. It's pretty remarkable, I think, that this happens in the sixth installment of a series that you were watching in multiplex. Yeah, absolutely. In 2010. Uh, this was a, this is a mainstream film to, and, to have a, to have uh, stuff as graphic as you get. And I would say across the series. Oh, it's one of the heavier moments. I would say there's not a, nothing that really comes close to the Saw films that really gets a massive mainstream no, release. No, no. Certainly in terms of the in terms of the gore. And I mean, it really goes there with this sequence. Um, so yeah, William's gone. His game. Well, I was going to say his game has failed. It wasn't his game, but in fact, I guess Harold and uh, Harold's wife and child have also failed their forgiveness test. Yeah, Although sure. curiously, they uh, suffered no negative repercussions for that. Which yep. is they're the only no, no. people. They're the only people in the Saw series to f- effectively fail a test and have no negative consequences from. Aside from the lasting effects of watching a man melt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm pretty sure sticks with you. And well, always visual, oral, uh, in an olfactory sense. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Good, excellent vocabulary muscle there, Thanks. by the way. Uh, so yeah, effectively that sequence is over, and then what you're left with is the ending, ending, aka this this film's resolution. Still of one its game part to go, plot. though. Someone's still got a game to pass, and that person is Detective Mark Hoffman. Yeah, and uh, this has been coming since, I believe, the opening sequence of Saw 4, I want to say. Mm-hmm. When the wax tapes found in Jigsaw's stomach, he says then, don't expect to go untested. Mm-hmm. Two films later, this happens. And um, it's it's a classic. It's a dusting off of a classic from the first film. Yeah, you've got the, the reverse bear trap. The reverse bear trap. So um, he comes in uh, to the kind of observation room, if you like, mm-hmm. of the warehouse where the tests have been happening. He sits down and is remotely shocked by something. So it becomes apparent that obviously Jill knows about uh, Hoffman's blackmail of Amanda and Saw 3, or at least that's where it is on the timeline, I guess. She puts the reverse bear trap on him, leaves him to kind of struggle. Now, I want to talk about this because I think that this is a pretty good ending. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way that Hoffman gets himself out of the reverse bear trap, which again, for people who are, have forgotten how this works, it's legitimately, it's strapped to your head with a metal plate inside your mouth. So if the timer run out, it is just a bear trap in reverse that'll tear your head open. Yeah, I think that the way that he stops this from happening is genius. He's nothing if not resourceful. It's great. Um, as we've already seen. Yeah, very true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just as it's about to kind of discharge itself, he uh, kind of rams it into the horizontal bars on the window of the room, thus wedging it shut for long enough for him to tear it off his face. Yeah. Uh, pretty gruesome again. Uh-huh. As he kind of like, uh, kind of screams, uh, kind of pretty much directly into the camera with uh, blood pouring out of his face. Great effect again at the end. Really good effect. Now, my it's not necessarily a problem, just an observation. I think obviously this is the the final scene of the film. It ends at this moment. Yes, it does. Like this is where it ends. And my problem with this is nothing to do with how this story is told and how this film ends, as much as this is done in service of the fact that there's going to be a seventh one. Yes. In the fullness of time, we will come to know that the seventh film is garbage. I would agree. Yeah. But what I would say is that it recovers some of the fun. Okay. Okay. I would say that while on the whole it's not a good film, it is a lot more fun. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'll give you a like. I'm, I I don't agree, but I see your point. I yeah. mean, look look at the very first set piece and saw and saw the final chapter. Right. The shop, the, the shop window. The shop window with the two guys and the girl. Great fun. Then you get the big set piece with Chester Bennington and, yep. and all that stuff. That's an amazingly fun scene. That is that scene's a fucking riot. Yeah, that's fair. Um, that's fair. I just think it it recovers a lot of the things that that it does right. Okay. 
but at the same time making a gigantic fucking misstep. Yeah. As oh yeah. A, like oh, I guess as a narrative experience, it oh, makes dire. a gigantic misstep. It's dire. So my, I, I know that, and we've spoken about this before, um, off mic, and I know that you think that effectively the series could have ended after three. I do think that the Saw series could have ended after three. I know Hoffman has a he has a an appearance in some of the other films, but he's just a he's a toss away character in those. So yeah, he doesn't he doesn't he's emerge. He's not a narrative thread that needs no. tied up. No, no, you you wouldn't have had to include him in the resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's that's a legitimate comment. Again, I, I I don't agree, but I think that if you're identifying possible natural stopping points, there is one there. I think that there's also one in six if you make one tweak. Okay, go on. So Hoffman survives, which obviously sets up the fact that the seventh film, uh, your kind of main story is going to be this kind of struggle for control of the Jigsaw legacy between Jill and Hoffman. Correct. Uh, this is a lot of fucking narrative hot air um, in a <laughs> film that feels almost entirely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Had the bear trap just killed Hoffman, what you would have had there was the... Uh, because obviously in the first film you don't see the trap in action. No, you don't. No. So you could have given the fans what they have been waiting five, six films for. Mm-hmm. Seeing that seeing that trap work could like I mean this film's already pulled no punches with the gore. Just do one more, like a proper great like well put together. You, you literally would only have to see it for a nanosecond and then cut to black. And it, yeah, exactly. But that would work. Yep. Also, it would provide your story with effectively a clear winner. Mm-hmm. In that Jill would win. Whether or not that's something you would prefer story-wise is kind of irrelevant. It's an ending. And I think that it's one that's way better than but what... But co- that's not Jill winning. I guess not. That's it's just Hoffman, John it's, winning. It's, uh, and it's Hoffman losing. Yeah. And I think that John winning is kind of still something that I would be quite up for. I think that yeah. I'd be in, in for that at this point. Yeah. I th- because it doesn't do that, you get into the kind of ridiculousness of the seventh one with bringing back Carrie Elwes' character, Dr. Gordon, <laughs> um, and all this kind of thing. And I mean, anyone with any kind of real world knowledge of the franchise knows that that's strange in itself because there was this long term kind of animosity between Carrie Elwes and some the, people that were involved the in the franchise. franchise. Yeah, there was a th- I think there was some kind of court battle, if uh, I remember correctly. I believe so, yeah. yeah. So I think, like, the, the very fact that he was brought back all feels a little bit kind of lip service yeah a little bit concessionary yeah. and I think that when you are well I mean obviously it was supposed to end it we now know it didn't but um, theoretically it was going to be the final chapter in this kind of like horror institution of the noughties and I think that to end it in a way that feels so kind of blandly in service to something like that is kind of offensive <laughs> um, you would have been able to sideswipe all of that completely and like I said John would have won the would have tied it would have tied up all the necessary loose ends um, and as you say, some unnecessary ones. Yeah. And what you would have had, I think, is a film that's not perfect, but it would have been a convincing enough ending to the story. And it frustrates me to this day that it didn't do that. Yeah. But I think that at the time it didn't bother me because I didn't know what came next. Of course. I didn't yeah, know how. Enough. I didn't yeah. know how big of a fumble the next one was going to be. I had I had enjoyed Saw Six. I was open to the idea of another one. So I didn't. My I didn't feel like a mistake as much as just something I would have done differently. It was only in the fullness of time and on reflection that I thought it was a mistake. Yeah. So the one little tweak is you let Hoffman die. Yep. Right. Okay. Yep. You give you get like and you give the fans what they want in terms of seeing the reverse bear uh, bear trap in action. You cut. That's it. Job done. Cool. What this film does though is weirdly um makes efforts to salvage Amanda's character. There's absolutely no need to do that. Yeah, there's no need. They try to humanize her by making it like obviously the reason she fails her game, I suppose, is that she's kind of forced out, her hands kind of forced by Hoffman. Yeah. And then you get this weird, and the only post credit sequence in the whole 
the whole series till this point. Yeah. Um, you get this weird sequence where Amanda's talking to Angus McFadden's little daughter that they kidnap in part three. Um, yeah. Through this, uh, through a keyhole, saying, "Don't trust the one that saves you. Don't trust the one that saves you." And that's that's Hoffman, as we know. Hoffman's the one that carries it out of out of the warehouse. Uh-huh. But like that whole scene is completely pointless and these efforts that are made to somehow redeem Amanda are completely unnecessary. But I think that that is less a criticism of this film and more a criticism of Saw 7. Because the fact, that, the fact that 6 sets stuff up that the 7th one ignores isn't the 6th film's fault, it's the 7th film's fault. Mm, maybe. Um, so, Because I, I, I genuinely think that that is just carelessness. I think that like that's set up in a way that could have been this really cool thing and this way to try and catch Hoffman out, put him on the back foot. We know he's bad at that. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Um, he reacts poorly to being cornered. And I think that, and I, and I, I remember seeing that post credits, quite liking it. Right. But, um, but like I say, I think that to lay the blame for that not getting picked up at the feet of the sixth film, I think is getting unfair. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So we're at the end of this now, and I can tell already that you're not sold. No, I'm not sold. Um, let me just clarify something here. Yeah. I've got a lot of love for the Saw films mm-hmm. from a makeup perspective. Um, I think they're superb. Yep, yep. And I think that some of the some of the twists and some of the paths that the franchise leads us down are really, really great. I just think that the film hits a massive or the, the franchise rather hits a massive slump that it never really recovers from for me. Okay, so at what point exactly do you think that happens? I think I mean like I've said, I think three is a perfect ending point. Uh-huh. But I knew that was never going to be the ending point. Yes, yes, yes. Four is a bit of a slump beyond that again. I yeah, I think, like, I think I think four is a straight up bad film. I don't yeah. like it. I think five picks things up a little bit more. Yeah, I really like five. And then it plateaus at six for me. Okay. Without ever hitting the heights of one, two, or three for me. Yeah, yeah. And then it tapers off uh, into seven and then drops off further with Jigsaw, which, is, uh, which isn't great. Oh, Jigsaw. Jigsaw um, is... Um, appalling I think yeah, I think it was your, was it yourself at the weekend that said that it just made you angry it made you straight up angry yes I think that it understand like because I know we've spoken here about the kind of the original Jigsaw message getting distorted a little bit as the films go on in Jigsaw that happens in a manner so egregious that it feels like intentional sabotage <laughs> the other thing that I think is interesting about Jigsaw is that it, it like it won't make sense if you haven't seen the other films but it also doesn't make sense if you have okay yeah yeah, I know. Um, like, as as a, in the wider story, it doesn't make sense. In how it actually deals with the story that's happening in front of you, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Both as a standalone film and as part of the series, it's an almost unqualified failure. There you go. So, uh, what's your closing <laughs> statements on Saw 6 then? My closing statements on Saw 6 are that I would concede that when I watched this back, I would say that there were certain things about it that bothered me more than I realised. And okay. um, I think that a lot of those kind of come stumbling into the foreground uh, in the second act and I think that like I say I think this hits a, this hits a point where it by necessity just has to get to a point and I don't and I think it really struggles to get there okay I think when it gets there the twists great the final couple of sequences with William dying and uh, Hoffman almost dying I think that they're great they're very much in the spirit of the franchise up to this point yeah I right. think so yeah, got you. and I think that it's and I think that it sets things up to go in really good directions and I think that it's unfortunate that it didn't go that way but I also don't think that that's Saw 6's fault so I would say that it's it's not a perfect film but I like it a lot and it does enough good work in recovering the things that I like about the franchise at a stage where I wasn't really expecting anything great okay 
So what about you? Have you taken anything away from this deal? I've kind of rediscovered what I liked about the franchise in the first place by watching them all. Yeah. Um, it hasn't really made me dislike the franchise any less. Uh, it hasn't really made me like this film any less. Okay. It's, to me, it's always just been a serviceable entry in the franchise, and a franchise that went on a little bit too long. Yeah. But at this point, was making efforts to resolve it again, which I think was important. Yeah. Because it was, like, like I say, end it at part three, they pushed it too far beyond that, but at least they started like, right, well, how the fuck do we resolve this thing that we've built now? Yeah. Um, and this is them attempting to do that. And I think they do an okay job um, while hopping over some pretty gigantic plot holes in an attempt to get there. Yes, I would agree. I, th- I think that it, it, it takes kind of like imperfect, but kind of valiant strides to fix some mis- to fix some stuff and pull yeah. it and try to pull it towards a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I'll have to settle for that. Yeah, you will. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I love these films. I really do. And um I think it's still overall I think it's a strong franchise. I think it's a strong franchise and like I say the key thing for me has always been the gore and always been the invention involved in yeah. And the carnage that the films put on screen and they fucking do. And it's a franchise that I kinda I know I said I wanted it to end after part three, but we're in a point we're at a point now where that's simply not the case and we're pushing forward potentially towards a ninth one. I believe so, yeah. Um fuck it. Why not? Yeah, I think that it gets to a point with these things when you read eight or nine of something that I think it starts to feel less like you're watching a series of films and more like you're watching like a ten part Netflix series is just coming out a little bit further apart than normal <laughs> to the point that if you have grapes with an individual one you can kind of be like well let's just see what they do next yeah which i don't think is a good way to evaluate art but it's our way <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, i'm very much of the opinion if they do another one fuck it why not i'll watch let's, it let's yeah. see what happens yeah. um uh, yeah I, I would say watch it with very very carefully managed expectations yeah, but i'll definitely set watch the it. risk of becoming quite flabby oh absolutely point. yeah yeah um, it's, it's, it's it's quite far down when all road. your all your narrative kind of threads are all wrapped up where do you pull these uh, leftover threads from and they've they've now tried to obviously create this new jigsaw character yes and um, they've set they've set up a lot of new things that it's very hard to care about <laughs> which i think is the problem hashtag watch jigsaw <laughs> <laughs> jigsaw is on netflix now for anyone that hasn't seen it yeah that's uh, true UK. Yeah, so if, you want it, if you missed that in theaters because it didn't get pretty god big theatrical release but not a huge life i don't think it, it I know earlier I'd said that it was the uh, that Saw Six was the the, the kind of lowest grossing out of the series by a considerable margin. I don't know how that relates to uh, Jigsaw's box office takings, mm. but I have mm. to imagine that Saw Six did better box office than Jigsaw. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah. But I would quite like to know um, what everybody else makes of this. Uh, what your opinions are on the good and the bad mm-hmm. uh, in the franchise, and if you want to get in touch about that and anything else. Uh, you can do it in all the usual ways. Facebook and Instagram, we are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us at strongviolentpc and uh, email us scenes at gmail.com. Yeah, absolutely. And as you know, there's tons of places you can be listening to us. You can get us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, Podbean. Now, we'll be back this Monday. 8am BST with another mini-sode and all the usual stuff that you get on there. Yep, and we will have a feedback section this week. It might even be just that little bit chunkier because we'll uh, include some stuff that we didn't include when we were at Fright Fest. Yeah, and um, uh, speaking of Fright Fest, hopefully I'll have, uh, I'll have uh, recovered from this Fright Fest lurgy that's claimed my voice box this week. <laughs> um, and speaking of Fright Fest as well, uh, keep an eye out. We'll, have, we'll probably have something um, a little bit more in-depth about that. 
Yeah, I think uh, we might. Uh, yeah, there might be some juicy little tidbits coming down off the back of Fright Fest. Yeah, keep an eye out for that. But in the meantime, yeah, we'll be back on Monday, eight a.m. And don't forget that it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.